Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 14 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. In some podcast news, from Monday, September 16th, 2019, Season 1 of They Walk Among Us will be exclusively available on Patreon. The podcast has come a long way in three years, and we couldn't have done it without the help of our Patreon supporters. The episodes will be available to those patrons who donate $3 or more a month. For more details, visit patreon.com forward slash they walk among us. Listener caution is advised as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. A 19-year-old Oxford student suddenly goes missing in 1991. Can the police weave their way through the lies to get to the truth? Rachel McLean had not returned to her room in student lodging she shared with flatmates Victoria Clare, Margaret Smith, Sarah Hume and Joe Fornby. The small terraced house on Argyle Street in Oxford was term-time accommodation for 19-year-old Rachel while she studied at nearby St Hilda's College. She was in the second year of her studies and had returned to Oxford from her parental home near Blackpool. Her mother had given her a lift before the term was about to start, as Rachel wanted to do some studying. She was the first of the flatmates to return home. Rachel was settling down for a few hours before her boyfriend John Tanner arrived from Nottingham. She went to meet him at the train station, but his train was delayed, so she went back home. The phone rang. It was her mother. She let Rachel know she had got home safely. John eventually arrived later that evening, catching a taxi to his girlfriend's from the station. The next day, the couple relaxed indoors with Rachel studying while John watched the football. Five days later, Rachel missed an appointment with a tutor and that day she uncharacteristically missed an exam. The tutor rang her parents to check if she was still at home with them, but her mother Joan said she had driven Rachel back to Oxford the previous weekend. 
Her boyfriend had not seen or heard from her since he left to return home to Nottingham. Her flatmates hadn't seen her either. Rachel had an extremely active social life, so alarm bells weren't ringing just yet. John Tanner called the house phone every day, leaving messages for Rachel asking her to call him when she reappeared. That wasn't unusual, as John called Rachel often. Her flatmates had not seen her since they all got back in time for the new term. Two letters would arrive at the home the students shared, addressed to Rachel in John Tanner's distinctive handwriting. Again, this was not unusual, as the couple often wrote to each other when they were apart on weekdays. As it had almost been a week since Rachel was last seen, Oxford CID took up the case. The house on Argyll Street was searched. Nothing seemed out of place. No visible evidence of a struggle. John Tanner said the last time he saw Rachel McLean was when he waved her goodbye at Oxford train station on April 15th. He was leaving to return to Nottingham, where he also attended university. John did not mention any conflict between him and Rachel during the weekend he stayed with her from Saturday, April 13th. They would alternate travelling to visit the other at their respective universities every weekend. John did mention to police that when he left Rachel at the station, she was with a friend of hers, a man John didn't know. The long-haired young man, as he was described, bumped into the couple at the train station cafe and joined them for a coffee before John's train was due to depart. John told police that Rachel appeared to know him and she accepted a lift home when he offered. The stranger told John his name, but not considering it important at the time, he couldn't remember it. John kissed Rachel, got on the train and waved her goodbye before it left the platform. On April 22nd, the press were informed of Rachel's disappearance. A police spokesperson said, quote, Although we could not admit it publicly, it seemed from the outset that some harm had befallen her. There was no reason for her to run away. She was a happy girl with a good background, loving parents and a bright future. John Tanner told the press on Tuesday, April 23rd, we had been going out together for nine months and as far as I'm aware, we were perfectly happy. Detective Sergeant Ian Waggett underlined the concern for Rachel, saying, quote, We're anxious to hear from anyone who might know where she is. Rachel was described as five foot six, slim with shoulder-length curly auburn hair. Detectives had checked Rachel's bank account, and no money had been withdrawn since her disappearance. By Friday, April 26th, Rachel had been missing for 11 days. A helicopter was used to scan the countryside in Oxfordshire and police teams scoured areas of scrubland near Rachel's home. Drains and sewers were checked and sniffer dogs were used, but nothing pointed to the location of the missing 19-year-old. The eldest child of Malcolm, a British aerospace engineer and Joan, a foreign language teacher, Rachel Margaret McLean was born when her parents were in their mid-twenties. Two siblings followed, David a year later and Peter two years after that. Rachel attended Hodgson Academy in Lancashire, where her mother worked. As a teenager, she helped out at a local church running a youth club. A vegetarian and an environmentalist, Rachel wanted to be educated by the world around her. She enjoyed poetry and excelled in English, obtaining an A grade for her English A-level. Her hard work paid off, 
She earned herself a place at the prestigious all-female St. Hilda's College in Oxford. She was well-liked with a full social life, being an active participant in many of the organised social groups in Oxford, including the Union, a debating society, and the Industrial History Society. She loved heavy metal music, so naturally joined the university's rock society. In term breaks, she sometimes worked at McDonald's. Rachel threw herself into more activities by volunteering to be the undergraduate entertainment representative and giving her time to charities, the Samaritans and Christian Aid. She was dynamic with a busy life when she met John Tanner. Rachel was about to start her second year English undergraduate degree after the summer break had ended. During the summer of 1990, Rachel was at home in Carlton, a village near Blackpool. One of her friends, Mark Rands, had introduced her to an acquaintance of his, John Tanner, who was temporarily working as a barman in a Blackpool nightclub called Adam and Eve. 21-year-old John Tanner was studying classics at Nottingham University. He had been raised in Wanganui, New Zealand from the age of four, though was born in the town of Farnborough in the northeast of Hampshire. His parents still lived in New Zealand while Tanner had spent part of his summer in Blackpool with a friend and some of his extended family. Tanner had been travelling before settling in England, seeing countries such as Singapore and Egypt. He finally found himself in Herefordshire with his aunt, who allowed him to live with her while he was working as a market gardener. After deciding to settle down, he focused on his education, studying classics at Nottingham, though he did not find it easy, having to repeat his second year. After meeting Rachel, the pair hit it off immediately. Their relationship was an intense one. A few months after meeting, Tanner even spent Christmas with the McLeans. As a present, Rachel brought John a paisley tie which he often wore as a belt holding up his ripped jeans. With Rachel still missing, John Tanner helped police put together an e-fit of the mystery friend he saw Rachel with at the train station. On April 29th, a press conference was held with John Tanner appealing for information. I hadn't contacted her. By the Thursday, I'd phoned the house and I got two answers that, um, as to they, they didn't know where she was or she was out or something. Um, I wasn't expected to meet her the following weekend. That had already been prearranged. Um, and when I came back on the Sunday, I received a note saying I had to call Rachel's mother. <coughs> saying she was missing. She can contact anybody she wants. Myself, she knows where to get hold of me. Her mother and father, more importantly, but if she doesn't feel like contacting them for any reason, the police will put her in confidence if she just calls them, calls into a police station. She will be treated like a free-willing adult. Journalists continue to ask John Tanner questions. As far as you're aware, you're not aware of anything that's sinister that's happened to Rachel that involved yourself? Not at all, no. Not to my knowledge. As, you, as far as you're concerned, you're quite clear in your mind that you last, you went on the train and that was it and you don't know anything more about it? Absolutely. In your heart of hearts, do you think that Rachel's still alive? In my heart of hearts, I like to think so. Detective Superintendent John Bound appealed to the public for their help during the investigation. But I asked that they... Uh, look in their gardens, in their sheds, in their garages, the workshops and any factories that are in the East Oxford area, I would ask members of the public to look there for any sign that Rachel there he is. Despite John Tanner helping with an e-fit days earlier, viable leads had not yet presented themselves. A reconstruction of Rachel and John's last meeting at the train station in Oxford took place. A student that resembled the mystery man the couple had met in the station's cafe offered to play a role in the televised reenactment. 
Police Constable Helen Kay, aged 26, acted the part of Rachel. Dressed in a fringed black leather jacket and black ski pant type trousers, PCK also wore a wig, though she didn't strictly resemble Rachel. Police hoped the reconstruction in which John Tanner played himself would jog someone's memory. He wore the clothing he said he was wearing that day. Long hair and dressed in a baggy black leather jacket and a pair of ripped part bleached jeans, John Tanner had a very distinctive look. The tie Rachel had given him was wrapped around his waist. The footage captured the mock couple walking into the station, hand in hand bending down to check the train timetable on the wall, the pair standing on the platform, John cuddling the stand-in Rachel from behind. And most importantly, the two were filmed in the cafe with a stand-in for Rachel's unknown friend that drove her home from the station. By May 1st, police had received just over 100 calls, which to them seemed like a poor response to the reconstruction and televised plea for information. Of the hundred-odd calls, only four appeared as though they would be of some assistance. The frustrated police spokesperson said, The longer this goes on, the more pessimistic we are about finding Rachel alive. Detectives visited her hometown of Blackpool to see if they could glean more information about Rachel's life and in turn come up with some new leads. Sunday, April 14th, 1991 was the last time Rachel was seen by anyone other than her boyfriend. She had spoken to her grandmother on the telephone at lunchtime to thank her for sending a thoughtful food package. The neighbours saw Rachel and John about 4.30pm outside the house on Argyle Street, but no one else had seen Rachel since. Police were suspicious of John Tanner. His version of events did not add up, and the two letters he sent to Rachel after her disappearance seemed orchestrated. The specific mentions of Rachel's mystery long-haired male friend seemed contrived. John Tanner was known to be extremely possessive of Rachel, calling her every time she went out. Her flatmate said it wasn't unusual for them to argue on the phone. A trained passenger who saw the reenactment came forward. They had seen John Tanner boarding, but he was alone. No one else was with him. Police Constable Helen Kay, who played Rachel in the reconstruction, later gave an interview. He was very relaxed. I think I was more nervous than he was. Nothing came back as a flashback to him. If I was going through a situation that I'd been through, the odd things would catch, catch your memory. you say, oh, I remember now. Such and such happened. Nothing like that happened, which I was a little bit surprised about. Still, the police came up short on solid evidence, and they still didn't know where Rachel was, even though they were going over everything with a fine-tooth comb. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. On May 2nd, a team of forensic officers searched the house Rachel lived in again. This time, they were going to strip the building from top to bottom. There had been no sightings or credible leads, so they went back to where they started. The police did not know the floor in the house was underpinned in their first search they discovered there was a gap under the floorboards. During the first inspection, the boards looked to have been untampered with, and as police were unaware of any changes to the foundations, they had not examined the area any further. But since the first search, the police had received detailed building information from the council, which included the house plans. They then realised there was a space perhaps large enough to hide a body. On the ground floor of the property was Rachel's room. This time officers were going to check under the floorboards. As the second search commenced, an officer peeled back the carpet. He could see no evidence of tampering to the wood, no chips or splinters where the boards would have recently been pried up. But he continued regardless, removing the wooden planks anyway. Once enough were removed to poke his head and a torch in, He did just that. At first he saw nothing in the small compact space. He pointed the torch further back and in the gloom he could make out a mound of carpet and more crucially a female foot. They had found Rachel McLean. A home office pathologist examined Rachel's body, and while that process was underway, police were quick to make an arrest. A neighbour at Argyle Street, a Mr Marsh, told reporters he witnessed police retrieve something from a drain positioned at the front of the house, before it was placed in a plastic bag. It took officers five hours to remove Rachel's body due to the way in which it had been positioned under the floorboards. To conceal the body in such a confined space must have taken some time. One major question was asked. Why hadn't the odour permeated the rest of the building and been noticed by Rachel's housemate since it had been hidden for the 18 days she had been missing? The way in which the house was built in the 1920s allowed airflow and drafts to flow through the foundations and the floorboards. The weather in Oxford during April 1991 saw lows of 4.6 degrees. Refrigerator temperature is 1.7 to 3.3 degrees. 
so at 4.6 it wasn't far out of range. Almost an ideal place to keep a body cold to delay or significantly reduce decomposition. After the discovery, the body hadn't been formally identified in the press, although Thames Valley Police Chief Inspector Laurie Frey stated, We strongly suspect that it is Rachel's body. Rumours were circulating that Rachel had been tied up, but a police spokesperson flatly denied it, saying the rumblings were, quote, a load of old rubbish. John Tanner had been arrested almost immediately after police discovered Rachel's body. He was apprehended in Nottingham and held there overnight. The next day he was taken in an unmarked police car to Oxford St Toldate's police station to be questioned by Thames Valley detectives. He laid on the back seat of the car and tried to shield his face with his hands from the flashbulbs of the waiting press. The police were openly criticised in the tabloids for the length of time it took them to perform a detailed search of the house Rachel was lodging in. Laurie Frey of Thames Valley Police addressed the concerns and said, When Rachel was reported missing, the house was searched, but there was no obvious interference with the floorboards, nor had any of the lodgers or neighbours heard anything suspicious. We had previously searched the loft and garden before turning to the neighbouring area, and the 50-acre scrubland immediately behind Argyle Street. Frey explained the trip to search the property was the next logical step. Quote, If every time we had a missing person inquiry, we took the house apart, a lot of people would be very upset. The post-mortem results were released that evening. The findings showed Rachel's cause of death was strangulation. Superintendent Bound gave a statement. Rachel was a very loving and caring girl. She was a young student, full of life, full of energy, and she enjoyed herself. She was in no way promiscuous. She was a very nice girl and somebody that any mother and father would be very proud of. There can be no doubt at the end of the day. On Saturday, May 4th, 1991, John Tanner was charged with the murder of Rachel McLean at some point between April 13th and May 3rd. His appearance at Oxford Magistrates Court was brief, but only three minutes long. Tanner wore jeans and an oversized light blue shirt. He spoke only to confirm his age and home address at Metham Street in Nottingham. To each of the questions posed to him, he simply responded, Yes, that is correct. Tanner was remanded in custody until May 9th and no application for bail was put forward by his solicitor Patrick Roach. Less than six months into his nine-month relationship with Rachel McLean, John Tanner claimed to have a health scare. He found a lump in his groin and thought he had cancer. As samples were being tested, his relationship with Rachel was beginning to show cracks. John spent some time in hospital and Rachel made the journey to visit him. Soon after, he was given the all clear but it was believed Tanner had fabricated the scare so Rachel wouldn't break off their relationship. When she later found out, she wrote in her diary, what is truly cancerous is the self-pity and the vampire-like way he leeches my affection. John was unapologetic, intense and controlling. A further extract from Rachel's diary explained she could see through John Tanner's soul like she was looking through a dirty window. The weekend before he ended Rachel's life, the couple spent the weekend together. But John said the period didn't go as well as he planned, as they couldn't have sex because of his recent sickness. 
He told police in his first interview, the second night he was with Rachel on that fateful weekend, things came to a head when she tried to break off their relationship. Emotions were running high. Rachel refused to marry him after he asked her for the second time. Tanner later explained, quote, She told me she had been unfaithful and claimed a willingness to be free. She said that she had deviated twice from our relationship. I was deeply offended, and to my deepest regret, I called her a tart. She tried to strike me, and instantaneously I flew into a rage and proceeded to place my hands around her neck. I feel I must have lost control. It was as if something had snapped inside my mind. In my confused state, I decided I must hide the body, and after sitting on the bed, I proceeded to move her body and place it under the house. John Tanner eventually got in touch with his aunt, who was in turmoil. She couldn't comprehend the pain the McLeans were going through, but she thought it was her job to love her sister's son regardless. When he called her, she asked, How's it going? Tanner replied, It isn't. I have told them I killed her. On May 9th, the coroner adjourned the inquest into Rachel's death as John Tanner was being held in custody, charged with her murder. On Sunday, May 12th, a memorial service commemorating the life of Rachel McLean was held at the University Church of St Mary's the Virgin on the High Street in Oxford. The church was packed tight with peers and teachers that wanted to pay tribute to such a popular student. Approximately 400 people paid their respects. Rachel's flatmates, the officers working on her case and her family. In the remembrance service, a tutor spoke of Rachel's sparkle intellect and imagination. At the Methodist Church in Port and Lafayette near Blackpool, Rachel McLean's funeral was held on May 29th, just under a month after she was found. Rachel was known to the church. She had attended Sunday school there when she was younger, and later in her teenage years, she spent time helping run a youth club. Sunday school teacher Kathleen Sutcliffe read a tribute to her pupil, addressing the 200 mourners who attended. Quote, Rachel was a loving, caring person. She loved her family, her parents, her brothers, and they loved her. She was a good friend. Her many friends readily testified to her loyalty and support. She was a bright, lively, happy girl with a sense of humour. She loved life. She contributed to our lives, and we thank God for the privilege of having known her. This service gives us the opportunity to celebrate her life. As the mourners comforted each other after the service, close family left for a private cremation and then to start rebuilding their shattered lives. The McLeans had requested donations instead of flowers. The cash will be split between the NSPCC and Save the Children. A memorial seat has been bought for St Hilda's College in Oxford, where Rachel was studying. Tomorrow, Rachel's boyfriend... A day after Rachel's funeral, John Tanner made a brief appearance at Oxford Magistrates Court on May 30th. This time he was remanded in custody for another four weeks. On July 16th, despite his earlier admission, he pleaded not guilty to Rachel's murder at Leicester Crown Court. Judge Mr Justice Owen predicted the trial would last a week and would be held at Birmingham Crown Court sometime in October. The trial date was moved and set to start on Monday November 18th, but it was delayed again when a fraud case overran the week before. Further delays were faced when a few days later John Tanner was briefly admitted to hospital due to a blocked bowel, a possible side effect of stress. A new trial date was set for December 2nd, 1991. 
John Tanner's parents, Bill and Jan, had flown in from New Zealand to be there for their son at the trial. But when the date was moved back again at short notice, they had to return before it started. Tanner's aunt and a few friends from Nottingham University attended, as did Rachel's immediate family. Tanner denied murdering Rachel McLean, though letters of admission meant the defence accepted he had killed her and then hid her body under the floorboards in her student accommodation. He pleaded guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Peter Wiseman QC prosecuting said that Tanner admitted to killing Rachel at 8.30pm on Sunday, April 14th. He then concealed her body in the space between her floorboards and the foundations of the house. Tanner gained access to the space by entering via a cupboard under the stairs. This might explain why the floorboards looked undisturbed during the initial police search. The small storage space was full of household items which he removed so he could get to the floorboards. Wiseman told the court, He slept that night at the house. Then on Monday he took the bus to Oxford Station and caught the 6.56 train back home to Nottingham. He had time to kill at the station, so while he was waiting he penned a letter to Rachel, though he delayed posting it to her until the following day. Dr Ian West, a forensic pathologist, reported his findings. He believed that Rachel had been killed via strangulation with a tie or cord. He recorded a very prominent ligature mark around Rachel's neck. He also noted signs of an attempt to strangle her manually. It was postulated the murder weapon was the paisley tie, which Rachel had given John Tanner as a Christmas present. On the second day of the trial, the video of the news conference where John Tanner pleaded for the safe return of his girlfriend was played to the court. Tanner just stared at the screen. The sound of him responding to questions from journalists at the conference filled the courtroom. Asked what message he would give to anyone holding Rachel, he responded, I would appeal to them to come forward and tell us out of sheer consideration for her mother and father and myself. A journalist asked if he thought Rachel was still alive. In my heart of hearts, I'd like to think so, Tanner replied. P.C. Woods relayed to the court the moment he discovered Rachel. Quote, With a torch, I glanced round in the cavity. I saw what I immediately realised was a human foot. Detective Sergeant Mike Scarlett, who was involved in finding Rachel, told jurors that Tanner requested to speak to him at the police station two days after his arrest. Quote, I went into the room, and as I entered he started to cry, and said, I wanted to see you to say sorry. Asked why, Tanner said, because of all the lies I have told you. You know the story I told you about Rachel's disappearance. I made it up, and wanted to say sorry. From the stand, the defendant repeated some of the statements he gave to police, like, I flew into a rage and proceeded to place my hands around her neck. But Tanner also told the court, I feel I must have lost control. This kind of reaction I have never felt before, and I am bewildered that I should do this to someone I loved so much. Defence counsel Stephen Coward QC read love letters that Rachel McLean had sent to John Tanner. This became too much to hear for a brother David and a mother Joan who opted to leave the court. Coward asked Tanner, It has been said that following your killing of Rachel, you set upon a policy of hiding the body, creating a smokescreen of the mystery man and lying to the police about him. John Tanner responded, I had dissuaded myself from the reality, given the disturbed nature of my mental state at the time, because I could not accept I had killed my love. 
I lived in a world of pseudo-reality, which was based on the reality I had known until the point when I killed her. I encapsulated myself in a false world. He was asked if he felt violent when Rachel turned down his marriage proposal. I have never resorted to violence to resolve anything in my life, he said. I have never struck or been struck by another human being. I have always resorted to active debate, and if that fails, I walk away. Curiously, he was asked about his life now, perhaps to garner sympathy from the jury. Tanner said, It is lonely. It is lonely, sir, because I have lost the ability to trust people. The defendant continued, mentioning Rachel. Tanner started to blink heavily, but no tears fell as his voice cracked. I do not believe that Miss McLean actually sought to destroy me, although the circumstances have proved that to be so. She told me that she had slept with a few other people. Tanner explained that shortly before he killed Rachel, he quickly rose from his sitting position on her bed. He said he called her a tart. The only recollection I have is myself lunging at her. I lost my control. I recollect that my hands moved towards her neck. My next positive recall is sitting on the bed looking down at her dead body. As part of their investigation, the police had looked in to Tanner's claim that Rachel was unfaithful. They found zero evidence to support that she had been romantically involved with anyone else. Tanner told jurors that he lifted Rachel's body back onto the bed and he laid on the bare floor for the rest of the night beside her, unable to sleep. Stephen Coward QC defending asked why he sent the letters and made telephone calls to Rachel's home after what happened. Tanner responded, Because I had convinced myself the situation was normal. Tanner claimed he didn't recall using a ligature to strangle Rachel McLean, but after a while, he said he could have used a towel, though the medical evidence pointed to something much thinner. When Tanner was cross-examined by prosecutor Peter Wiseman QC, he explained his reason for the correspondence after Rachel's death. Quote, Because there was a private struggle between what was real and what was not. John Tanner bowed his head when extracts from Rachel's diary, which showed disdain for her boyfriend, were read to the court. He was not aware she had a diary. Her writings were in contrast to the letters and cards she sent to Tanner. A valentine she sent him read, To my one and only John, the one who was with me through all the most wondrous moments of my life. After she sent it on February 11th, Rachel wrote in her diary, What a joke. I just wrote John's Valentine card, full of sweet, pure words. Words that I shoveled out some fountain inside me. A fountain that dried and cracked. Somehow I don't think he would have appreciated sweet nothings along the lines of you sick, childish bastard. Another entry in the diary about John read, You are so busy generating self-pity that you cannot see how you slice me to pieces. I hope your romance with yourself lasts forever and ever. In his closing speech to jurors, Peter Wiseman said Tanner had, quote, an extraordinary degree of callous deliberation entirely at odds with any tendency to lose control of himself. When you consider whether, when he strangled Rachel, he was no longer a master of his mind, you reflect on the calm consistency he showed preparing his false story. Defence counsel Stephen Coward QC told the court in his closing argument that Tanner had killed Rachel, his girlfriend, in a fit of passion after she confessed to seeing other people. The QC said, It was not the act of a sick psychopath who got a kick out of killing beautiful girls, nor that of a cold, calculating killer, 
and it was a love story, a grand passion. In summing up, Justice Kennedy addressed the jury, quote, The circumstances are emotive. That is why there are so many people sitting in the press box. But you, in deciding the case, must put aside emotion. You are here to do justice. That means putting aside any sense of sorrow for the family of the dead girl, the dead girl herself, or indeed the man in the dock. It was the jury's decision whether John Tanner would be found guilty of murder or the lesser charge of manslaughter. On Thursday, December 5th, 1991, the jury retired to consider their verdict after a four-day trial. When they returned after four hours the following day, their decision was read to the court. In a 10-2 majority verdict, John Tanner was found guilty of Rachel McLean's murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. John Tanner's aunt, who did not want to divulge her name, was permitted to momentarily speak to her nephew every day in court. She said, He cried every night. He is filled with remorse for what he has done, but he knows he has got to live with it for the rest of his life. Rachel's mother, Joan, spoke to the press. I think that we feel the way we've always felt, that it's a tragedy for him in his life as well, Um, that it wasn't just Rachel's life, it involves him and his future and his family and his friends and I think that's the way we've always felt and I don't think we've any reason to alter our feelings. Can you forgive him for what he's done? I think you have to because I think otherwise it, it eats into your life. Detective Superintendent John Bounds spoke about John Tanner and told the waiting press, I doubt you will see and I hope you will never see a case of such a nature again. In some respects I think he is in a world of his own. Obviously he has fantasised and that was mentioned by the judge. On top of that my concern, if that is the right word, regarding John is that he has been totally infatuated with himself. Speaking of the delay in finding Rachel's body, D.S. Bound said, I'm obviously disappointed we did not find the body earlier, for Rachel's parents' point of view, and also for the girls in the house, but there are circumstances and reasons for it. So where are we now? In mid-August 2003, newspapers printed photographs of the then 34-year-old bespectacled John Tanner picking up a Chinese takeaway wearing a football top and track pants in Wanganui, New Zealand. After serving nearly 12 years of his life sentence, he returned to the country where he grew up and the town where his parents lived. For precisely 15 years, John Tanner's name was never mentioned in the press. Then, in August 2018, his name appeared again. He was in court in New Zealand, facing charges of violence towards his partner of nine months. Over a period of six months, she suffered several instances of abuse. On one occasion, Tanner put his hands around his girlfriend's neck and squeezed Other times he punched and slapped her, and in yet another incident, he threatened to kill her if she left him. It was reported by the New Zealand Herald that Tanner straddled his girlfriend on a motel room bed in the middle of an argument and hit her with a closed fist. After he had attacked her, he left the room, but came back enraged when she sent him a text message saying their relationship was over. He came storming through the motel room door, hitting her once more, but this time he stripped her clothes off and insisted that they had sex. In court, Tanner's partner expressed her wish to stay with him, but felt he needed help. 
Judge Philip Creighton of Wanganui District Court imprisoned John Tanner for two years, nine months for injuring with intent to injure. John Tanner faced the parole board of Wanganui in March 2019. His plea for release was denied. The board feared for the safety of his partners, as his compulsion to be violent had not been resolved. He could not explain his actions or provide details on how he would overcome them. The board suggested he see a psychologist in prison, but Tanner complained, saying he had not long ago had an appointment, but the psychologist cancelled it. Tanner felt he should be able to receive that help while he was on parole, but the board ruled, quote, It is clear to us that notwithstanding his high intellectual level of understanding, there is still a worrying concern about how and why in the heat of the moment he reacts to a tense situation of the type that occurred in this case. They decided John Tanner should remain in prison until the risk of his predisposition to perpetuate violence towards his intimate partners had reduced. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information about this podcast, please see our show notes or visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.